calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Rookie is a free serialized audiobook meant for mature audiences. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. For links to order a young adult version of this book without all the cussing, in print, ebook, or audiobook, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie one word. This podcast contains mature situations, adult language, and lots and lots of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, junkies. If you are a social media type, you may not have seen much of me on the webs lately. Why? Because I am busting my fanny on the second draft of Shakedown Book One of the Crypt. I am now about 50,000 words in. It looks like it's going to be about 125,000 words total. So I'm about 40% done. As you hear this, I am on my way to my nephew's wedding. So I'll get what writing done I can, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing my family. A and I are also seeing pals who are in that area. So let's hope the COVID fairy stays home and doesn't sprinkle us with uh, pixie dust. I got to get back to writing. So let's get you caught up on the story. And then we're all going to go smack Tinkerbell with a fly swatter. Previously on The Rookie, Quentin is on the touchback, the Kraken's team bus. He's trying to impress his new coach and his new teammates, even those that are the demonic races he's been taught all his life to hate. Can he work with those teammates and acclimate to the big time? Find out next on The Rookie, episode number seven. By the time the quarterback position meeting ended, Quentin felt thoroughly annoyed. He had several days of busy work lined up, wrote memorization of defensive players and schemes in addition to his offensive studies. And the real bitch was that none of it really mattered. When he took the field, that's when all this bullshit would fade away once Hokor saw what he could do. After the position meeting, Quentin followed Pine and Itzak onto the dining deck. He had an uneasy feeling he couldn't quite explain. He'd never done team functions with the Raiders. He'd always done his own thing. Here, he gathered, he was expected to dine with the team. The brightly lit room held over 20 tables, each surrounded by a variety of chairs designed for the different body types of humans, Sklorno, Quith Warrior, Quith Leader. Unlike the corporate offices, there were none of the six-foot-long table-like chairs for the key. We have to eat with the sub- I mean, the other races? Pine stared at him. What, 
You can play a game with them, but you can't eat with them. Well, I mean, you know, you have to have the different races to win the game, but that doesn't mean you have to eat with them for high one's sake. It's a league rule, Itzhak said. All the species must use the same dining facility. Remember, the Kretorakians' whole point of this league is to create a sense of ambassadorship among the races. Well, I don't see any key here, so are the keys some kind of exception or something? Quentin didn't see any of the monstrous creatures in the dining hall. Itzhak shuddered before he answered. Their eating habits are a little, uh, uh, shall we say, messy compared to the other races. They eat alone. What do you mean, messy? They butcher their food at the table. They eat it raw. Quentin looked at both men. You're fucking with me again, right? Both men shook their heads. It's horrific. They kill the animal right there on the table. The table is even designed to catch all the blood so they can drink that too. That's disgusting. And that's not the worst of it. That's just the ones that come from the key empire planets. The ones that come from the key rebel establishment planets, they don't even bother to kill the animal before they start eating. Quentin stared dumbly. You mean they eat it live? Itzhak nodded. Hi, one. They are demons. Oh, take your morality and vent it, Barnes. They're not demons. They're just different from humans, that's all. Meals are a major ritual for the key. It's part of their culture, how they bond and shit like that. But to eat a live animal? Only a mongrel race could do that. <laughs> well, I guess Piney is a mongrel then. Pine smiled, but Quentin just stared, dumbfounded at the evil that surrounded him. You've broken bread with creatures that eat their food alive? Pine simply nodded. Quentin felt his stomach churning at the thought and suddenly found Pine's blue skin more repulsive than ever. What are you, blue boy? Some kind of fucking Satanist? And there it is, Pine gave a knowing nod. You see, Quentin, you are just like Warburg, just another purest nation racist. I'm a leader, Barnes. Key don't accept you until you eat with them, until you fight and bleed with them. I do whatever it takes to make this team play as a whole, and that's something you'll either figure out and succeed, or you won't figure out, and your ass will wash out, and you'll be gone. Quentin turned to Itzhak. And I suppose you've eaten living flesh, too? Oh, God, no, I, I couldn't quite bring myself to do that. But I did manage to sit with him through the whole thing, and I did drink some blood. I mean, you gotta see it to believe it. It's worse than any horror holo you've ever seen. Quentin shook his head, then turned and walked away. Position meetings were over, and he didn't have to spend any more time with these two barbarians. He spotted Warburg, sitting alone, a huge tray of food in front of him. Quentin, come, let us break bread. Quentin walked up to the table and stared at the food. With all the activity he hadn't eaten, and suddenly realized that he was famished. Where's the food? Warburg stuffed some potatoes in his mouth as he gestured to the back wall. A glass-enclosed counter ran the entire length, all fifty feet of it. Under the glass sat every kind of food Quentin could imagine. The food was divided into sections, each about two feet in length. Above each section glowed a holographic symbol of a planet or a system. Quentin didn't recognize half the symbols, but the purest nation infinity symbol glowed a warm welcome. He grabbed a tray from an overhead shelf and started loading up. The mint mashed potatoes he'd seen Warburg eating, chicken breast smothered in curry paste, pita bread and mason gravy, multicolored broccoli, which grew only on the planet Stewart, 
and a thick piece of chocolate cake. Just to his right was the flag of the Planetary Union and a selection of dishes that looked somewhat familiar but were all things he'd never before tried. One of the dishes seemed to be some kind of halved shell with a raw, glistening, grayish mass sitting inside. Raw food. Typical blasphemy of non-nation races. Quentin didn't exactly say his 20 praise high ones each night, but that didn't mean he was so sinful he'd eat raw food. Just to his left was the glowing five-star circle of the Quith Concordia. His lips wrinkled involuntarily in disgust at the brownish selections, many of which had more spindly legs than any insect he'd ever seen. Quentin turned away from the strange foods and walked back to the table, rejoicing in the smells that drifted up from his tray. He sat down at Warburg's table. Did you see that disgusting shit those quith eat? Yeah, what is that garbage? Insects? Warburg shrugged. I don't know and I don't care to know. High One knows it's something unblessed and blasphemous. We'll see what they eat when they're burning in hell. Quentin cut a big piece of chicken breast and bit into it. His eyes closed in pleasure at the taste. Food's gotten pretty good since Greedock picked you up, Quentin. Wasn't it good before? Warburg shrugged. It wasn't bad. The cooks would try to make nation dishes out of whatever planetary union or League of Planets crap they had laying around. Ever since you signed, though, they've been bringing in the real deal from nation freighters or whatever. Seems like Greedock and Hokor want to make you right at home. Quentin shoveled in some potatoes, marveling at the succulent taste. Well, I'm glad they feel that way. I haven't had decent food since I got to the Combine. I hope they start you right away, Quentin. I can't stand that fucking blue boy pine. Quentin nodded. You know, he told me he's eaten raw flesh with the key. What do you mean, eaten? That's past tense. The fucking blue boy does it every week. Low one take him. Look at him now. Warburg gestured to the far end of the hall. Most of the tables held members of only one race, either human, quith, or sclerno. But Pine sat at a table of quith warriors, laughing, smiling, and stuffing some limp, brown, multi-legged creature into his mouth. I hope he likes the heat, considering where the high one will place him on Judgment Day. I mean, it's one thing to have to talk to these demons, that's just the nature of the game, but to sit down with them, to eat with them, and eat their barbaric food... It's absolutely unforgivable. Quentin nodded and turned back to his plate. The sight of Pine eating that brown thing had killed his appetite, but he kept eating anyway. Tomorrow was the first practice, and he'd need all of his strength if he was going to win the starting quarterback position. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 5. Practice. As he'd instructed, his room lights flickered on at 6 a.m., one hour before the position meeting. His room filled with the loud sounds of the band Trench Warfare. He stretched as he listened to the seductive but strong vocals of Trench's lead singer, Somalia Midori. Their music was banned back on Maccoby, but Quentin had managed to get his hands on a few pirated broadcasts. As a kid, he didn't even know it was possible to circumvent the laws of the holy men. The more games he won, however, the easier it became to obtain contraband items, like erotic pictures, recorded GFL broadcasts, or out-of-system books and music. When he entered his sparse room for the first time the night before, he'd asked the computer if it could play any trench warfare for his wake-up call. The shocking answer, the computer had access to not only every trench album, but most of the band's live performances from the last five years. He could watch Holo or just listen to audio. He'd had time for one Holo before going to bed and had watched in amazement at the four musicians performing on stage to a jumping, gyrating crowd of humans. He'd been shocked to see that Somalia bore the blue skin of a Baker Six native. He thought she was beautiful, but just for a second, then asked the computer for sound only. Discovering an endless library of music had been a surprise pleasure, but nothing compared to the well-nigh religious experience that came when he asked the computer if there were any archived GFL games. What team and what year? The computer had asked. How far back do the games go? To the beginning. The beginning of what? The very first GFL games? To the beginning of football. What do you mean to the beginning of football? What's the oldest game you've got? Fordham College, Earth, versus Waynesburg College, Earth, 1939. 1939? But that's 700 years ago. 743 years ago. Would you like to see? Yes. Quentin turned to the holo tank. A picture flashed in the tank, but it looked very strange. He could make out football players, but they were tiny and far away, without color. And they were, they were flat, like a printed picture. What's wrong with it? It looks broken. This was called television, a two-dimensional electronic representation of actual events. Do you have any more of these television broadcasts? Galactic Free Archive has every game ever broadcast via television, radio, and holocast. Quentin watched a play in which the quarterback took the snap, turned almost 360 degrees, and followed a wall of blockers into a wall of defenders. His heart raced to think he was watching the beginnings of his sport, a game played almost 750 years ago. He could watch any game ever recorded and all of the Till Pirates games, even games from the archaic NFL. As he kept working through his morning stretch, one of those games now played in his holotank, between teams called the 
Kansas City Chiefs, and the Chicago Bears. He'd instructed the computer to wake him up with not only music, but also a random football broadcast at least 500 years old or older. He felt the deep pain of the long stretches, but that was fine. He needed to be ready. He had plans today. He'd show them all just what kind of a player he was. He walked through the ship's empty corridors, descended to field level, and entered the central locker room. A circular area, the central locker room was built around a holo board. Four doors lined the circular room. A small icon hung on each door. A human, a key, a sklorno, and a quith warrior. A huge, realistic mural dominated the other side of the circular room. Quentin stared at the brightly colored, six-tentacled monster, rising up from the depths in a spray of deep red water. Long rows of backwards curved teeth lined a cavernous mouth. One large eye glowed an eerie green, a kraken. He nodded to the picture. It was a fitting mascot for the violent game of football. He entered the human door. The room was empty. He was all alone. He found his new space. Barnes, number 10, it read above the locker. Get used to that number, Galaxy. You're going to be hearing it a lot. He opened the locker. The first thing he took out was his practice jersey and stared at the number 10 on the chest. He felt the texture of the black Kevlar fabric. This was only a practice jersey, and yet it was of far higher quality than anything he'd worn in the PNFL. He set the jersey flat on the ground. He smiled as he pulled out a Cool Products body control suit, designed to regulate his temperature on the field. Coolant fluid constantly circulated through the microtubules in the suit's thin, rubbery fabric. He slid into the suit, which automatically adjusted itself to conform perfectly to his body. Next, he pulled out his arm and shoulder armor. Rawlings' null-contact inertia-dampening system, state-of-the-art. Supposedly, the armor could stop a bullet, absorbing the velocity into the hard shell instead of transmitting it to the wearer. He slid them on. Like the cool suit, the armor's micro-sensor circuits automatically adjusted for a tailored fit. The armor was thinner on his left arm, his throwing arm, to allow maximum flexibility. Next came the matching lower torso armor, which would protect his ribs, stomach, kidneys, and lower back. He wrapped it around his waist. The micro-sensors contracted and expanded, locking it in precisely with the shoulder armor. Groin and leg armor were more of the same. The knee joints were made of an interstellar caliber alloy, designed to allow 100% flexibility, but locking out any possible hyperextension. He slid his feet into the armored boots, which locked in perfectly with the leg armor. With all this protection, it seemed to wonder that any being got hurt at all. And yet, they did get hurt, frequently and badly. Football players were just too big, too strong, too fast, and too violent. Quentin wondered what kind of injuries might occur were it not for this high-tech armor. He moved around, feeling the armor move with him, a perfect fit that didn't seem to hinder his range of motion. He pulled on the jersey, then grabbed his helmet. The shiny black Riddell helmet was lighter than anything he'd used before, but probably ten times stronger than what he'd worn on McCovey. A patch of bright orange decorated the front of the helmet, from temple to temple. Six white stripes stretched out from the orange patch, like the arms of a stylized sunrise. There were three white stripes on each side, 
one curving under the ear hole, one just above the ear hole, halfway up the curving side, and one higher up on each side of the helmet's center. The stripes represented the six tentacles of the quith creature, for which the krakens were named. A recessed button sat under the right ear hole. Quentin pushed it. A holographic test pattern hovered just in front of the face mask. Once again, state-of-the-art. He'd tried to talk Stedmar into springing for the in-helmet holo display, but Stedmar balked at the half-million-credit price tag. The display would let a quarterback see the playbook, live statistics, and even the coach, in case the coaches used hand signals, lip-reading, or some other secretive play-calling method. He pushed the button again, and the test pattern disappeared. Quentin headed for the sim room, cleats clacking against the metal floor. The lights blinked on as he walked in. As he'd suspected, the place was empty. Everyone else on the ship was still sleeping. Ship, do you have a sim for the Kraken's practice field? The dome flickered briefly. Then Quentin found himself in a dead-on simulation of the practice field. Ship, give me the first-string defense for the Grontok Hydras. The semi-translucent players appeared out of nowhere, a combination of human and other species all dressed in the red and yellow checkerboard Hydra jerseys. Ship, call out the names of each defensive player before each play. Give me X-right formation, double streak left, Y right. Kraken's players materialized. The key linemen scurried up to the line and lowered themselves for the snap. The computer started calling out the names of the defense as Quentin approached the line. He'd practice and study at the same time and would show them all just what the purest nation had to offer. The 7 a.m. position meeting didn't take more than 10 minutes, just enough time for Hokor to outline the day's practice. They would focus on route passing, just quarterbacks and receivers, no offensive line and no defense. The three quarterbacks walked to the left. In the center of the field stood seven Sklorno receivers dressed in orange practice jerseys. Sklorno's orange leg armor was thin and light so as not to hamper their speed. For the upper body, they wore a black metal mesh armor that protected but also allowed for the full range of motion needed by boneless tentacles and flexible eye stalks. The black helmet with the orange patch and the white stripes looked like a small bowling ball with four finger holes on top, one each for the armored eye stalks, and a gap in front that let their raspers hang free. Before the lift even reached the field, the Sklorno looked up at the oncoming humans and began to visibly tremble. Their raspers rolled out, almost to the ground, and each of them began to shout various Sklorno words, all of which sounded like birdish gibberish. What's their problem? What, are they afraid of coach or something? Pine shook his head, and Itzhak laughed. <laughs> Not exactly. The righteous brother Pine here is somewhat of a religious figure in the Sklorno culture. Religious? What, like he's a preacher or something yeah. like that? <laughs> preacher? Yeah, not exactly. Oh, give it a rest, man. Pine's blue-skinned face turned a strange shade of purple. Itzak put his hand to his chest, his expression that of mock pain. Oh, forgive me, great one. Don't strike me down with your godly quarterback powers. Quentin looked back to the Sklorno receivers. The closer the humans got, the more the Sklorno shook. It reminded him of the truly devout back home during noonday prayers, how they would shudder and shake, their black robes rustling with sudden movements, 
oftentimes speaking in tongues, their eyes rolling back into their heads. As a child, such behaviors scared the crap out of him. As he grew older, he learned that those people were supposedly in deep communion with the High One. The similarities clicked home. What, are you kidding me? They worship Pine? You mean like uh, like a god or something? Itzhak nodded. Something like that. As a human, it's kind of difficult to understand, but from what we hear, there are at least 32 confirmed houses of worship dedicated to the Great Pine spread throughout the Sklorinel space. Oh man, cut it out. It's not like I encourage this shit. There's actually a statue of the great and glorious Don Pine on the Sklorno capital planet. How tall is that again, Pine? A hundred feet or so? Fuck off, Itzhak. Why do they worship him? Itzhak shrugged. Something about the quarterback position. That and great coaches. Strikes a chord with their culture. Sklorno aren't as independent as humans. They tend to blindly follow their leaders. Coaches and quarterbacks get the most media attention in football, and the Sklorno are insane football fans. The nature of the game and the culture just kind of combine. Who knows, Quentin? You could put together a couple good seasons, and there might be a church or two in your name. Quentin felt his own face turning red. The idea of someone worshiping him, not as fan to player, but as subject to God, made him deeply uncomfortable. He felt sacrilegious just thinking about it. They reached midfield. Quentin heard the burble of a small anti-grav engine, and he looked up to see Hokor flying towards them in a small hovercart, the same kind people use to move around on a golf course. What the hell is that? What, he can't walk all of a sudden? Yeah, Hokor likes to watch from above, get a full view of the field, but he wants to come down to offer his special brand of encouragement. The golf cart slowed and floated about 10 feet off the field. I hate that damn golf cart. You just wait, you'll see. He's got a loudspeaker in it and everything. As if on cue, Hokor's amplified voice bellowed across the field. All right, that's enough of that crap. You will cease this shivering immediately. As a unit, the Sklorno instantly stopped shaking, raspers quickly rolling back up under their chin plates. They stood as still as they could, but kept twitching, little chirps escaping them every few seconds. That's better. Pine, line them up and run hook routes. They all stood on the 50-yard line. They ate Sklorno 15 yards to the right of the human quarterbacks. It surprised Quentin that he immediately recognized Denver and Milford. He'd always thought all Sklorno looked alike, but Denver had more red in her eye stalks, and Milford's oily head of hair seemed to be thicker and longer than any of the others. If it weren't for jersey names and numbers, however, he wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between Scarborough, Haywick, Richfield, Miss Quiddick, and the other Kraken's receivers. Pine grabbed a ball from the rack and squatted, just as he'd done in the VR practice field. The first Sklorno bent down in another strange starting stance, legs folded up like a grasshopper, tail sticking straight back to balance the forward-leaning body. The back of her jersey read, Haywick, Hut, hut! Pine took a three-step drop, planted, and fired. Far too high. In the millisecond after the ball left Pine's hand, Quentin figured the ball would sail 40 yards downfield. But the ball hadn't even left his hand before Haywick was 15 yards downfield and turning. And she didn't just stop and turn, like a human receiver would do in a hook route. She stopped, turned, and jumped. Quentin's jaw dropped as she sprang 10 feet into the air, like a 200-pound flea. 
The ball hit her square in the numbers. She landed and turned in the same motion, sprinting all the way to the end zone before she even slowed down. Quentin stared, barely able to believe what he'd just seen. Such speed! Pine and Itzhak hadn't been screwing with him in the VR room. Sklurno really were that fast, and that leap. It was one thing to see it on the web. It was quite another to see it in person. Itzhak took the next ball. The next Sklurno's jersey read, Mesquitic. Hot, hot! Itzhak dropped back three steps and fired. Again, seemingly far too high. Mesquitic sprang high, caught the ball, landed, and streaked down the field. Quentin was still staring at the streaking Sklorno receiver when Pine poked him in the rib pads. You're up, boy. Quentin grabbed the next ball from the rack and squatted down just behind the 50-yard line. He looked to his right. Scarborough looked back at him, awaiting his signal. Hot, hot! Quentin drove backwards three steps and planted. He started to throw, but hesitated a half second because Scarborough was still a good eight yards from where she was supposed to turn and catch the ball. In less time than it took to blink, Scarborough was there, turning, leaping, and looking for the ball. Quentin threw as quickly as he could, but it was too late. Scarborough had hit the ground by the time the throw reached her. It sailed over her head. Barnes! What the hell was that? Quentin blushed. Get used to the timing, Barnes! With Sklorno receivers passing is a three-dimensional game! You're not in the bush leagues anymore! Practice continued for another hour. Quentin kept struggling with the Sklorno's blinding speed and leaping ability, but made significant progress pass after pass. He had some trouble with Mesquitic, who dropped two of his passes, but he clicked well with the other receivers, particularly Denver. Only in the final five minutes did Hokor open it up for long patterns. Pine started by dropping back seven steps and firing a 55-yard strike to Haywick. The Sklorno receivers let out a series of rapid clicking noises. Itzhak, what's that sound they're making? That's the Sklorno equivalent to an ooh and ah. The ladies love the long ball. Itzhak threw next, hitting a 45-yard streak to Mesquitic. The receivers let out clicks, but they weren't as loud as they'd been for Pine's pass. Quentin smiled as he grabbed the ball and squatted down for his turn. Neither of these guys could match his arm strength, not even the once-great Donald Pine. Scarborough lined up to his right. Quentin barked out a hot hot. He dropped back the prescribed seven steps and kept going, finally settling up a good 15 yards from where he'd snapped the ball. He watched Scarborough all the way, his mind now somewhat accustomed to the receiver's 3-2-40 speed. Quentin unleashed the ball. The Sklornos clicks started immediately as the ball arced through the air like a laser-guided bomb. Scarborough angled under it and caught it in stride at the back edge of the end zone. The Sklornos not only clicked and chirped louder than ever, they started jumping up and down and hugging each other. Raspers lolled and spit flew everywhere. God damn, that's a good pass. It was 75 yards in the air and right on the money. Quentin smiled, his hands patting out a quick bada-bap on his stomach as he waited for accolades from his new coach. Silence! The anger in Hokor's voice seemed to terrify the Sklorno. They huddled together, shaking and twitching in a mass of fear. Hokor turned to Quentin. What was that? Uh, that would be a touchdown, coach. I know what a touchdown is. What was that drop? Come on, coach. I just wanted to show you what I can do. And what you can do is drop back 15 yards? What are you, a punter? 
Quentin felt his face flushing red once again. Well, you know, no, coach. You know, I just want to show you how deep I could throw it. Well, if you like the show all so much, how about showing for me how far you can run? Take 10 laps around the field. We'll finish up the reps without you. Quentin blinked, his mind suddenly not registering the coach's words. Finish up without me? I said take 10 laps. Now move! Pine grabbed the ball and squatted down for the next rep while Denver crouched in readiness for her turn. Pine dropped back. Denver sprinted, and everyone seemed to ignore Quentin. Coach Graber had never singled him out like that. Quentin's face felt hot. Anger swirled in his chest as he trotted to the edge of the field and started his first lap. You have been listening to The Rookie, book one of the Galactic Football League series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on the author and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon, superweaponband.com. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.